you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to NFL Films Tales from the Vault. I'm your host, Hall of Fame journalist, Andrea Kramer. On this podcast, I get to do something so cool. I take you inside the NFL Films Vault to unearth some of the greatest interviews ever done by the late, legendary Steve Sable. And as president of NFL Films for five decades, he conducted over 200 interviews with some of football's most iconic figures. Today's a special one for me, folks. As I've mentioned to you before, I started my career at NFL Films as a producer in 1984, hence my relationship with Steve. Well, nearly two decades later, I had the pleasure of working with Al Michaels on Sunday Night Football. So my worlds truly intersect here as we bring you Steve's 2007 interview with the great Al Michaels. From the gun, Steelers show blitz. Here they come. He gets it away and it's picked off at the goal line. There's a flag thrown on the run back, James Harrison to run it back, and Harrison is past midfield. Harrison going down the sideline. Harrison still on his feet. Harrison is going to go all the way and waiting for the official to get there. Touchdown is signal. I pride myself on being an objective journalist, but this is one of those oh-so-rare moments when objectivity kind of goes off the rails. These days, we throw around the Appalachian goat, the greatest of all time, pretty loosely. There are goat emojis. We have listicles about who's the goat. And of course, it's all quite subjective. But I challenge anyone to question that Al Michaels is the greatest play-by-play voice of all time. But he's so much more than just a voice. Even though, of course, when you hear those mellifluous tones, you always think big event. When I joined Sunday Night Football in 2006, I'd never been a sideline reporter before. So Al and I had lunch and he told me, 
You are literally and figuratively somewhere no one else is. Bring us there. It was the start of many valuable lessons I'd learned from Al, but it also illustrated his deep knowledge and understanding of broadcasting, communication with his audience, knowing, as we say, what makes great TV. Al's career spans six decades. His first NFL game was in 1973. But beginning in 1986, when he debuted on Monday Night Football, Al became synonymous with those big games in the NFL. And in February, he called what's most likely his last Super Bowl with NBC. The interview you're about to hear took place the summer following Al's first season calling Sunday Night Football on NBC. And we begin today's interview, where else? at the beginning of Al's remarkable career. So let's go to the vault for Steve Sable and Al Michaels. You know, I was just thinking when, when, uh, when I started in the, in the business, I remember somebody telling me, uh, giving me advice, and they were saying that, you know, when, when you, your first cut is always your best. And it was totally wrong. Can you remember when you started out, somebody got a hold of you and said, Al, you want to be in this business? Here's some advice, and it was totally wrong. Yeah, everybody seems to be a, a genius early on in your career, and everybody wants you to, you know, do do what they think has has worked best for them, especially if they've they've been in the business. And um, I think most people tell you, you know, be yourself. But mm -hmm. but what is what does that mean? <laughs> I mean. You don't even know, most people don't even well, know who they like are. that sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. Yeah. Someone yeah. said that, yeah. gave him some bad advice. Yeah. Be yourself. Well, <laughs> you were saying you're not yourself when we see you, or you are yourself. No, I am myself now. But early, you know, it's, it's funny. I've been in the business for so long that, that uh, I mean, people look to me to give them advice uh, and have for a long time. I mean, I got in as a kid, and I, I've been announcing sports since I was a freshman in college. So I'm 17 years old. So I'm pretty much learning on the fly. And I learned from the guys that I listened to as a kid, going all the way back to when I was growing up in Brooklyn. And Vince, Vince Scully, Scully was there, and Red Barber was there, and another great announcer by the name of Connie Desmond, who very few people remember. And Mel Allen is doing the Yankees, mm -hmm. and Russ Hodges is doing mm -hmm. the Giants, and Jim Woods is there as well. So. I learned from them, and I was able to pick up Kurt Gowdy on the radio because he was mm -hmm. doing the Red Sox games, and I could pick it up in New York. So that's how I learned. And, and what you try to do, I think, when you get into the business very young is to emulate mm -hmm. the people that you really admire mm -hmm. and maybe take the best from, from each of them. And I think I was able to do that When you say on. emulate, you mean their phrasing, the timbre of their voice, mm -hmm. how much they talk? What, what are the things that you would emulate? All of those things because you, you, you listen to how they... They structure the game. And I'm not sure, you know, when you're 16 or 15 or 14 years old and you're listening and you're thinking about wanting to do this uh, down the line, that you really are, that you completely understand what it is you're trying to listen to. But you do know that there's a pattern and there's a rhythm and there's there's um, uh, an, a, almost an art form. And, and you're hearing it and you're absorbing it. And just in the way that certain things would be described, um, how they would go about presenting information mm -hmm. and all of that. And consciously, I don't think you're thinking about what they're doing in terms of structuring the game, but you're hearing them. And you're hearing them every night as I did as a kid. And so then when you finally go on the air as I did as a freshman at Arizona State, and I'm announcing my first ever football game in, in September of 1962 on a campus station, 
Colorado State and Arizona State, you know, going to about uh, four people who can pick it up who are near the boiler room in the women's dorm. I mean, that's about how far our signal w- was carried at that point. I'm just trying to, in my, in my ear, hear the announcers that I liked and pretty much parrot the way they would say things. And that's how you get started. And then from, from that base, I think you begin to refine certain things. And then you do become yourself at a certain uh-huh. point. But when you begin, it's like sitting down to write something or to narrate something. You, you, you have a, a template in mind. And that template very often is going to come from what you have heard. Because otherwise, you're reinventing the wheel. Or you're doing something that nobody else has ever done. And you can't do that, especially not at the age of 17. What did you think of the first time you heard Howard Cosell? First time I heard Howard Cosell, I think Howard was on the radio in New York, and I, I knew it was very different. And uh, he was unlike any anybody else I, I'd heard. So I understood what he was doing in the sense that he wasn't a conventional play-by-play person. Obviously, he was uh, he he was more of a uh, a fellow looking into the social fabric of of sports, uh-huh. and nobody was really doing it at that particular time. And he was. Uh, 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 confrontational with very uh, with a lot of his subjects, uh, and it was in a way it was when I heard him and I was very young. It was a little off putting to me because I think when you grow up, especially in the, in the era in which I grew up, you want to love sports unconditionally, and you don't want to see any warts in sports, and you certainly don't want to see the blemishes or any of the, the, the bad things. I mean, we've, we've almost come full circle right now. I mean, we, we, I think one of the things that kids of my generation uh, grew up loving sports for was the fact that it was so clean and pure, at least in your mind, because maybe you had a naivete and you didn't understand all of the permutations. Yeah. So you just loved the games and you loved watching the athletes and you, you loved the competition. And now all of a sudden we're in a different era, you know, two generations later, where we're into every every aspect of, of every sport, and a lot of it is very unseemly. But still, at its core, I think people love sports because you're, you're seeing the best of the best competing at the highest levels. Yeah. And so going back to you know the Cosell situation, I mean, Howard was very good for, for the business. He was very good for, for people to, 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 to have as a, uh, as a voice to bring to the fore certain things that they needed to, to know to have a better yeah. understanding of sport within the, the fabric of society. Yeah. When it came to doing an actual game itself, a lot of people didn't want to hear Howard Cosell yeah. because there comes a point when the game is being played when you just want to watch the game. You don't want to hear about anything else. Well, do you feel out uncomfortable sometimes now the way sports television is going? Like you just said, that there were things that are that you and I are from the same era that, that are now brought forth. You just, I, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to know about that. But in your position, you're almost required to, to sort of dip into that uh, into that pool now and bring out. Do you feel uncomfortable doing that? Or do you say, look, this is the way the job is and I've got to do it now? I think about that a lot, Steve. And I think that you, you, you have to understand that why is somebody watching something? Now, if you're going to watch a football game, that means you want to watch the game. If you want to watch a show like Outside the Lines on ESPN, that's a different animal. Now you're watching that because they can take you to places that is comfortable for the viewer because that's what you expect. If, you, if you're going to turn on a, a program like that, that's what they deal with. They deal with the issues and they have the time to mm-hmm. deal with the issues. If you're doing a game, 
I find that I have to get in and out quickly. There are things that must be addressed uh, because they are important in the context of the game. But you can't belabor them. And you can't, I can't sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to devote the next two and a half minutes to this topic. You can't, because in those two and a half minutes, they will run about seven or eight plays. There'll be a change of possession. There'll be a 60-yard pass down the field. There'll be a challenge. You can't do that. So it's very disjointed. There's a frustration for me in this business, and that is there are so many things that you want to say, so many stories you want to tell, so many things that are so important. But once the game is underway, you have to be able to dart in and dart out. Make it lucid for the viewer. Make it understandable to them. Explain why this is important, but you have to do it very deftly, and you have to do it very quickly. So there's an enormous difference between the game itself and all of the shows that surround the game. How do you avoid cliches? Because that's one thing that all of us at NFL Films are amazed at, that you never hear Al Michael say, put points on the board, or these guys have to step up, or, you know, all, all the things that you hear all the time. I mean, is that just something that you've erased from your mind, or, or is, do you make a conscious effort? Like that, or or is just it's just never part of your vocabulary at all to say that. You know, Steve, I, I've been doing this for so long that there are times when I, I almost have to consciously figure out a different way to say something, and uh, as a consequence, if, if the only thing that pops into my mind is something that I've heard a million times and is a cliche, I won't say anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the, like you feel this belch coming on. Right, right, yeah, right. And right. you need a you need a Pepto Bismol. <laughs> right. Now, it's not to say. I mean, I, there are there are times when I mean something will come out, and I'll I'll, I'll think to myself, how did I say that, or why did I say that, or that's mm -hmm. ridiculous, or couldn't you have found something better? But you know, when you're dealing with live television, and I've done you know thousands of hours of live television, it it, it just can't be perfect. I mean, you're going to yeah. say certain things that you wish you could have back. And believe me, there, are, there have been a ton of times in my career when, you know, a half a second later, you're thinking to yourself, I could have said that better, or why I, I missed this, or I missed that. But it's a case of, um, I guess, you know, through the years, I've seen so many telecasts of so many games in so many sports, mm -hmm. um, and, and I know what I like, and I know what I don't like. And, and uh, I guess in, in growing up, you know, I've heard every cliche in the world. And, and, and in, a, in a way, when I hear something and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, no, 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 don't, don't go there. I just don't let my brain go to, go to, to, you know, to, to, that, to that phrase or, mm -hmm. or say something that I think I'm going to be embarrassed by or, or mm -hmm. just upset with myself for saying. So it, it really just comes, comes naturally. And, what about and, an opinion, and that's, that's, that's how it happens. What about an opinion that you might have given that you, after it comes out, is there a little voice that says, uh-oh, I don't think I should have said that? Or, or is an opinion much more considered, even though, as you said, you're on live television and uh, there sometimes has to be, I guess, a speed bump between your brain and your mouth. But there's got to have been times where you, you, you've felt passionately about something and you said an, you've given an opinion mm -hmm. and then later maybe you said, uh-oh, I don't know whether I should have said that or not. You know, less and less so now, Stephen. The reason for that is that it's become um, so much more accepted to give your opinion in the middle of a game. And what I'll try to do is, if I see something, and, and I'm not saying it because I want people to think, well, you know, this is what I think. It's more in a, it's more a case of I'm trying to make something um, just seem uh, more organic to, to people in the sense that, hey, I just saw something that you might not have seen, so let me tell you what I think just happened here. 
And sometimes that's presumptuous. Sometimes people will have seen it. But very often, you know, through the body of experience and being at the game itself, mm -hmm. as opposed to being a viewer at home on your couch, I have access to and can see certain things that I know other people may not have seen. And at that point, I like to come in and say, hey, you know what just happened here? Or here's what I think happened. Or, mm -hmm. you know, here's the background here. So I always try to make sure if I have an opinion, it's grounded and based on facts. And I've got the facts straight. And you may not agree with my opinion, but let me just tell you this. Here's the base. And I'm working from the base. I'm not just spewing mm -hmm. out garbage. Has there ever been a time when you've got a call from an owner or a player criticizing something that you've said? There have been times through the years where what's happened is very often, and I, I can trace this to, uh, to the fact that the, the player in question has almost never heard what you said. Somebody tells him. Somebody you hear what tells Al them, said, right. Yeah. And, and, and 15 or 20 years ago, before everybody had a VCR yeah. or access to some yeah. sort of a, a replay system, uh, it was hard because, the, you know, you, you couldn't say, hey, go back and look at the tape or here's the tape. Now it's easy. Now when, when these, these, these things happen, I and mean, I, I go all the way back. I mean, in, in baseball, I remember having done the 1985 World Series between Kansas City and St. Louis, and Ozzie Smith did not have a very good World Series. And uh, I can't remember what the exact numbers were, but I think at one point he might have been like one for 17. And the next year, we're doing a, a Monday night baseball game, and he confronts me. And he says, hey, he says, uh, you said I stunk. I said, excuse me? I, I said, I, I, gave, I gave the numbers. Ozzy, the huge one, yeah, well, I talked to a lot of people. They said you said I stunk. I said, I didn't say you stunk. I said, in fact, if you can provide or, or, or come up with a, uh, a piece of evidence in which you hear me say you stunk, I'll give you a million dollars. Well, he didn't want to. Anyway, you, you, get in, you get into these things with these, and what happens is if their performance is not what they want it to be, they hear something from other people. I know how this thing works. But you know what, Steve? You, you deal with it. And these days, I mean, there's so much that goes on on the Internet, sports radio and all that stuff. I mean, we're like pussycats in that world. I mean, at least we have this some semblance of responsibility in what we do. So I would never get to the point where I would completely destroy a guy and go into his personal life and all of the rest. You just don't do that. But I've, my, I've always been driven by just be fair and be honest. Now, it, it, it may not be something that a coach wants to hear or an executive wants mm -hmm. to hear or a player wants you to talk about, but it's there. It's there and it's important. And if you're accurate, if you're accurate, at least you can have a discussion with that person or those people and say, hey, wait a minute, let's go back here and look at this, okay? What was wrong? Was there, was there a fact that was wrong? And, and very often there isn't. They're just upset. And I can understand that because when nobody likes to be criticized. Nobody likes to have the candle held up to them in a very negative light. I get it, but sometimes it's necessary. You just don't do it indiscriminately. It has to be done in a situation where what you're talking about is germane and relevant to a game, to a season, to a franchise. Then it's important. I hate to state the obvious, and I really hope you feel the same way, but what you're hearing is like a master class in broadcasting. So Al talked about cliches, and it's not just that he hated using them, but he also disdained using what he called football speak. So when I was taking over, 
being the analyst on Amazon Thursday Night Football, of course I talked to Al, and he says to me, 90% of the broadcasters and 99% of the audience have no idea what they're talking about, but they think it sounds really cool. You know, this language of football, A-gaps and fire zones and jet sweeps and ghost motions. And Al said to me, don't talk about it if you can't explain it. So guess what? I feel like I'm always getting a masterclass in broadcasting from the great Al Michaels. When we come back, we'll share with you some of Al's most memorable calls. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. I don't usually do this, but spoiler alert, Steve's next question to Al was how Al would want someone to describe him to someone who's never worked with him. Well, as someone who has worked with Al, there's probably not enough time for me to describe him, but three things come to mind. Number one, he's got this incredible facility with language. Secondly, he's got a memory for the most minute details, and he is meticulous in both his preparation and in knowing the rules of the game. I remember back in our first year on Sunday Night Football 2006, was a wild card game, Seattle-Dallas. Towards the end of the game, there was a pretty controversial play. We go to commercial, and as Al is looking at the replays, he's literally saying out loud, okay, let's take this one step at a time. And he's going through the progression of the play with all the rules just to make sure that not only was he correct, but that he could communicate it correctly. If um, there was a a young analyst that was going to work with you for the first time, didn't know you, and uh, I was going to give him a description. He's going to say, geez, I'm going to work with Al Michaels. How would you describe him? How would you want me to describe, describe you to this young kid who's going to work with you for the first time? That you're demanding, you're a perfectionist, you'd be on time. What would be the things that you would want this kid to be aware of if he's going to work with you for the first time? I would say make sure you come thoroughly prepared. I mean, that's, the, that's really the, the most important thing. I don't want to work, ever have to work with somebody who I knew didn't do all of the work. I want you to come to the booth completely prepared. And th- there's no excuse for not being prepared. It would be like going to play a game. You're a quarterback mm-hmm. and you don't know all of the plays. You haven't read all of the playbook. You haven't done all of the grunt work. I would say the other thing is for somebody, an analyst coming off the field in particular, um, remember one thing, you're no longer a football player. You are a broadcaster, and the really good analysts in this business are the, the guys that have the mindset of, I am in the broadcasting business. I am not in the football playing business anymore. I've played it. I know a lot about it. I can bring a lot of things to the table because of my experience of having played with teams and worked with various coaches and maybe even coached. But now I'm in the broadcasting business, and this is a different animal. And it's not just good enough to go into the booth and talk about rotating zones and zone blitzes and all of the rest. That's fine. That's why you are there. You're there to describe that. But understand how you should describe that. Understand what everybody else on that crew is doing. Understand how the tape truck operates so that if you want to talk about something, you have an idea whether or not they can get to that. Uh, in time or not. So it's a matter of, and, the, and as I say, when you look at the creme de la creme, the guys at the very top of this business, John Madden, of course, my current partner being yeah. the prime example, when John stopped coaching, 
he thought of himself more as a broadcaster than as a coach. Now, he'll always be a coach, even though he hasn't coached for, for almost three decades. He's a Hall of Fame coach. But John is even better as a broadcaster because he understands the business. He understands what it is we're trying to do. He understands how to communicate. Anybody, you can find 10,000 guys who can come up and explain the zone blitz to you. But very few of those 10,000 will be able to put that into the type of, 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 of uh, uh, containment that will allow the viewer to get the most from that, to understand that, to talk on the level where a viewer understands exactly what's happening, and then present it in conjunction with what the people in the truck are doing so that everything is seamless. Do you teach any courses for broadcasting anywhere? I don't. I've been a guest lecturer for, uh, well, you'd think for a that few. You'd be, yeah. That'd be a great course that you could yeah. teach. Yeah, it's well, a good retirement uh, job. There, you. there you go. So, <laughs> is this a suggestion? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but one thing that I think that 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 constantly amazes me about you is that you're at your best in that two-minute drill, and I don't think anybody in all of football understands clock management better than you do. And I and and we watch games and we say. You know, Christ, Al knows this better than some of the coaches. The way Have you taken a special amount of pride in that, about understanding that last two minutes and how the clock, the guy's out of bounds, this? And I mean, I've never heard anybody understand that and explain it as well as you do. You know, it's, it, it probably comes from, I love sports, and I've always loved sports, mm-hmm. and I've always been fascinated by the strategy of sports. So... Even when I was very young, I, you know, I'd watch things and I would think to myself, well, what, what are they doing? And very often you'd have a rooting interest, and if the team that you were rooting for was doing things that you considered wrong, I mean, you'd be up off the couch going, what are you doing? So I, I, I always tried to put myself in the coach's head in that regard, and a lot of this has to do with math and, and understanding you know, concepts of time and how much time you have and where, where you want to use the timeouts. And it's a, it's a funny thing. When I was doing the Super Bowl in, in Atlanta in 19, in, after the 99 season where, you know, Steve McNair got the ball for Tennessee. Mm-hmm. He's going down the field. They're trying to tie the game. It would have sent the Super Bowl into overtime for the first time ever. And it became, it was a very interesting thing where he should use that timeout. And I was able to, you know, I went out on a limb and I said, here's where I think he should use it. Here's where I think he shouldn't use it. And it kind of worked out the right way because he did get all the way down to, you know, the one yard line when the game ended on a, a Mike Jones tackle of Kevin Dyson. But that was the kind of thing where it's a lot of fun to do that because, you know, you're seeing something and you know they're seeing what you're seeing. And, 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 and to me, that was, um, that was a very satisfying thing because all of the things that you know, I'd kind of gone out on the limb about sort of came to fruition. Other times they don't. And, and that's where, you know, you, know you, you were talking about sometimes, well, coaches have come up to me and, and have, I wouldn't say criticized me, but I, you know, I've, I've been a little harsh in certain situations because it didn't work out for him. And I said, but then again, and here was the situation and more often than not, they'll basically say, "Well, yeah, you know, it's, but you know, it's it's, it's a lot tougher to do it than it is from your spot." And I'm going, "Well, sure it is." <laughs> Just want to jump in here with a thought. I think that Al withstands any criticism because he's basically the oracle. He's the voice of the NFL. His informed opinions take on an outsized role. Between his years at ABC and NBC, Michaels has called eleven Super Bowls. His first. Was Super Bowl 22, Washington versus Denver. Remember how Washington spoiled the anointing of John Elway by 
putting up 35 second quarter points, Al made the names Timmy Smith and Ricky Sanders famous. His second Super Bowl made Buffalo Scott Norwood infamous as the kicker missed the potentially game-winning field goal in the waning seconds of Super Bowl 25, and Al put the term wide right in the lexicon of sports. Now Norwood tries to kick his longest ever on grass, 47 yards, eight seconds left. No good. Wide right. What, what's your recollection of the Norwood field goal? I remember feeling uh, a great deal of empathy for him, knowing, you know, because when, when he misses the field goal, you know he's going down in history as a guy who will always have that attachment. And a 47-yard field yeah. goal is made probably less than half the time in the National Football mm-hmm. League. So when people say, well, Scott Norwood blew the, the Super Bowl, not, not really. He had a chance to be the big hero. It just didn't work out. It was a pretty good kick, too, just you know, wide to the right. I remember that Super Bowl. That was a different Super Bowl, too, because that was right after uh, the, the start of Desert Storm. Right, right. And the they country... The snipers up on the oh, roof. Oh, it, it was, the first, it, it was the first time... I drove up to a stadium, and there were big concrete barriers around the stadium six or seven days before the game in in the old Tampa Stadium. And and that was a very disconcerting and unnerving thing. I mean, here we were, in effect, at war. Um, We were, you know, we'd we'd invaded uh, Iraq to, you know, to free the Kuwaitis. Um, And all of a sudden, uh, this was, you know, a war that was taking place, of course, thousands of miles away, but you could feel the impact in the United States. And this is, you know, 10 years before 9-11, so we're not even thinking about scenarios like that. But it was it was one of those things where there were too many guys in uniform, there were too many concrete barricades. It was a gray and murky day in mm-hmm. Tampa. It just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like the celebration that the Super Bowl should be. Now, the game turned out to be very good. The game turned out to have a dramatic ending. But it was played with that as, as the backdrop. Of course, that was the, the Whitney Houston right. Super Bowl as well, where you know she electrified everybody uh, with her rendition of the anthem. But it was, a, it, was a weird, it was a weird game because the rest of the world was in such, not quite disarray, but the country was in a different place at that point. And, and, and we had... Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a case where everybody could sit down as they do on the national holiday that is the Super Bowl every year, and so and, and get completely into the game. We were worried about too many other things, you know, snipers in the stadium and the whole thing. So, and I know that uh, we we were we were briefed by uh, by federal officials uh, the night before the game in terms of uh, our you know Frank Gifford and Dan Deardorff and I doing the game about. You know what, what? 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 We should do if we wound up in a hostage situation. And I'm thinking, what? I said, first of all, how are we going to wind up in a hostage situation? There's too much protection here. But just the fact that these were some of the things you had to think about before the game was very unnerving. You mentioned Monday Night Football. What did it mean to you to take over to to become part of that announcing team? That's the most 
you know, the most famous broadcast on television, the mystique of Monday Night Football. What did that mean to you when you became, became part of that, uh, that uh, tradition? It came out of nowhere because it came at a time when ABC was bought by Cap Cities and we had new management coming in and they were going to take, uh, uh, take control in 1986. And I'd been there for, for 10 years at that point and I was the number one announcer for baseball and I was the number two announcer for college football and I did a lot of great stuff on Wide World of Sports and I'd had the Olympic experience and, in Lake Placid and all of that. But it came out of nowhere, and Dennis Swanson took over for Rune Arledge as the head of ABC Sports. Rune had been there for 20 years, but Rune was now concentrating on, uh-huh. on news. Dennis Swanson had come in and had taken over for Rune Arledge. I did not know Dennis Swanson, and I knew Rune very well, and he treated me extremely well. But all of a sudden, I get a call a day after Swanson takes over, and he says, uh, I'm going to come out, and Dennis Lewin's going to come out. Dennis was an executive with us at that time and uh, we want to talk to you. And the next thing I know, Dennis comes out and tells me I'm the announcer for Monday Night Football. So it was a complete shock. Now, Monday Night was going into its 17th season. At that point, you know, Cosell had left the show, Meredith had been there, had gone, had come back, and, Mm -hmm. and was gone again. And the show was fraying a little bit in terms of the ratings and and, um, the patina around it. So... It was a case, I I didn't know if I was taking over a lame duck or what. I was very excited, but I didn't know where the show was at that particular point. And Cap Cities came in and they had a reputation of being uh, cheap, which they weren't as it turned out. But at that point, (laughs) one of my good friends called me up when I got the job and he said, congratulations, you got invited to the orgy after the girls went home. (laughs) <laughs> because it looked like maybe this was going to be the end of Monday Night Football, and I was there to, 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 to bury it, to help, to help the, the, the funeral process. Well, as it turned out, the, you know, they renewed the rice in 87 when it looked like they might not, and, and away we went, and I got 20 years out of it. And i got to tell you, phenomenal. That's the fastest 20 years in the history of, of mankind for any human being. It, it was a phenomenal run. Uh, there was an excitement that surrounded that show unlike anything else I've ever done in television. You just know that when it's Monday night, uh, that it's the only game in town and that people are very excited about it. And as, as exciting as Sunday is, and Sunday's a, you know, a, a football day and a football night for, for all of America, when Monday night was on ABC, it was very different because it was, it was the only game. And very often, the, it, was, it was either the best game of the weekend or the second or third yeah, best yeah. game of the weekend. And some of those games you know, will live in uh, forever as, as, as classics. Uh, I mean, the Giants against the 49ers, where, where each almost came in undefeated back in 1990. They'd each lost the week before, but a game that did a phenomenal rating. Of course, before I got there, Chicago against Miami in 1985, highest-rated Monday night game in history. So this was an American event, communal primetime Event and, and there was a feeling in that stadium, no matter where it was on a Monday night, you know, I'd go down on the field before the game, walk around an hour and a half, two hours before the game, the stadium begins to fill up, and there was an electricity in that place. And it all dealt with the fact that, you know, you knew you were in a venue where millions and millions of people were going to gather around their television sets and watch what was going to take place on that field. So I, you know, I look back on the 20 years that I did Monday night on ABC as, as really an honor. I was, I, I was fortunate to get the job and I feel very honored that I was able to have the job and wound up doing, you know, well over 
200 games and, and, and worked with Frank Gifford for so many years and, and with Dan Deardorff for so many years and then Dan Fouts and John Madden uh, at the end of, uh, of that run. But it was something special. I'm, never, I'm not sure that could ever be recaptured again. Perhaps Al's greatest gift is capturing the moment in the most memorable and scintillating way, informing the audience while reflecting the feeling of a fan. Of course, that's epitomized most by Do You Believe in Miracles, a call that transcended sports, a call that certainly defines his career. But we're talking football here, so we have to pull from the vault some of Al's best Monday night football calls. Fake to Martin, then a dump, and it is juggled and caught by Jumbo Elliott. Favre lays it up for Freeman, and it's incomplete. Or did he make the catch at the 15? What are they going to rule? Did he caught it? Touchdown! (laughs) He did what? And Bo Jackson... To the 20 and out in front, and there goes Bo, and nobody catches Bo. Touchdown. <laughs> it is caught by Dyson. Can he get in? No, he cannot. You know how you always hear that the goats of the game play their best when it counts the most? Well, so too with Al Michaels. That last call we heard was from Super Bowl 34 when the St. Louis Rams beat the Titans, but don't forget that even when he was at NBC, He called Santonio Holmes the tiptoe touchdown catch for the Steelers as they beat the Cardinals. He called Malcolm Butler's game-sealing interception for the Patriots when they held on to beat the Seahawks. And of course, this year, the amazing end of the Super Bowl with Cooper Cup's touchdown and Aaron Donald's final pull-down of Joe Burrow. When we come back, we know that Al Michaels tells great stories, but he's also been the subject of quite a few such as the time he was traded from ABC to NBC for a mascot. If you don't know who Oswald the Rabbit is, you got to stay tuned for this one. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. In my experience, one of the greatest traits of any broadcaster is his or her ability to sound the same and be the same person in and out of the booth. So to hear Al spin a yarn is as entertaining as his calls were memorable. Remember how he mentioned that he has to be tight and concise calling a game? Well, not so when telling a story, such as how he got to NBC after 30 years at ABC. Al was under contract with ABC when Monday Night Football was transitioning to ESPN. NBC was launching Sunday Night Football and wanted to pair Al Michaels with John Madden. Al's partner on Monday Night Football for all those years. So what did NBC do? They orchestrated a trade of sorts. Among the assets acquired by ABC in exchange for Al Michaels, four years of Ryder Cup rights, rights to air Olympic highlights, and of course, the right to reacquire the likeness of Oswald the Rabbit. When you were traded to NBC... How did that work with Oswald the Rabbit? I mean, how, with that, Disney sold them to NBC and were sold back. How did that whole thing work out? That was a strange uh, title when you read uh, Michael's mm-hmm. traded for Oswald the Rabbit. Mm-hmm. I made the decision to stay with Monday Night Football because I was given a deadline in July of 05 going into a lame duck season. John Madden had already signed with, with NBC. Our producer and director would subsequently sign with them. At the time I had to make a decision in 05, I felt I wasn't ready to, to make 
to, to, to pulley the cord and leave the Disney Corporation. And I also felt that it would have been very bad form in a lame duck year to walk out the door and be walking out the door with everybody else and we were going into a season in which we were going to do the Super Bowl, among other things. So I agree to stay. When the season comes to an end in 05, I realized that the best place for me would really be Sunday night at NBC, and it was available to me at that point, and go back to work with John and, and, and a lot of other very key people on our crew. So I worked for ABC for 30 years, and I went to the right people and I said, look, I said, I know I'm signed to do Monday Night Football in the future. I just don't think it's the right fit. I would really appreciate the opportunity to go to NBC and be with the people that I have been with for a number of years, and I just think it will work out better for everybody. There was a lot of reluctance to let me do this, but I continued to you know, go down that path, and, and I was able to get them to understand, okay, maybe this would be the best thing. If I don't want to be there under the circumstances that they had developed to do Monday night, I would rather be at, at, at Sunday night, okay. So in conversations between Dick Ebersol and uh, at NBC and the, and the people at, uh, at uh, ABC and ESPN, they agreed to let me out of my contract at ESPN. And there were some stipulations where NBC had to give up certain rights to coverage of the Ryder Cup and the Olympics and all of that. At the very end of this thing, Bob Iger, the head of Disney, knowing the, the Disney family, and the descendants of Walt Disney had once had a conversation with Walt's either niece or uh, cousin or whatever. And she had brought up the fact that the one thing that always frosted the family was that Oswald, the lucky rabbit, who was the predecessor of Mickey Mouse, was still somehow in the Universal Studios vault. And was there any way that we could get, you know, the Oswald character brought back to his true home? So Iger laughed about it, Ebersole laughed about it, and it was the kind of situation where, you know, it was kind of a little unwieldy with me having signed with ESPN, now I'm going to go over to NBC, how did this happen, what's going on behind the scenes? And to kind of take the onus off it a little bit, they threw this thing into the mix. And they talked to me about it, and I said, what, you know, whatever it takes. I said, look, I'm all for freeing animals anyway, so, you know, my, my animal-loving friends will, will, will enjoy this. And, you know, we don't want this guy locked up in a vault somewhere. Let him out. So we had a lot of fun with it. I mean, it was just kind of a little thing off on the side. You know, the press loves to run with stuff like this. It winds up as a front-page piece in, in the L.A. Times. We all had it, you know. It was it was all it was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a goof, is what it was. But but how much did it have to do with the deal? Zero. <laughs> I have two more questions, and this was about the the mechanics of what goes through your mind when you're doing play by play. Because to me, it seems so complex, and yet when you listen to you on the air, it seems so simple. Yeah. Well, the key is preparation and anticipation. You have to go unprepared. You got to have all your ducks in a row and your facts in order. You then have to anticipate what's going to happen. You have to have a tremendous amount of clarity. I mean, all of a sudden, you put the blinders on. You're like a horse going into the starting gate, and all you're doing is looking straight ahead. It requires a lot of concentration. It requires a, um, a degree of communication with the people around you, uh, in particular the producer who you're speaking back and, and forth with 
a lot of the times. But I think one of the, I think really the key, the key is to, as you're doing this, try to put yourself in the position of the viewer. So you're doing the game, but you're also viewing the game. And very often during a, a telecast, in addition to doing all of the things that we have to do, and it, it's, it is going at warp speed, there's a lot of stuff going on, and I can do it because I've done this for years and years and years, but I also try to say to myself, okay, a guy's at home, sitting back in his Barca lounger, what does he need to know right now? What is it that he's thinking about? What is he interested in? What's overkill? What's, what, what, what doesn't he know that, that I can bring to him that will enhance his enjoyment of the game, that will be elucidating? So it's a subconscious thought, but it's there. And I'm always trying to, to do it. It's, it's, it's a two-way operation. I mean, I'm on this side, but I'm trying to be on that side. Because when I sit at home and I watch a game, I mean, I am the viewer. And I'm thinking, hey, look, if I'm in the booth, this is what I'm doing at that point. So I always try to put myself in the viewer's position and try to figure out what it is that will be beneficial to him, interesting, educational, and annoying. And try, obviously, to stay away from that. So it's, it's a complex thing. It, 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 it sounds more complex, I guess, than it is only because, I mean, to me, it's all, it's a second nature situation. But I think the key, Steve, the key is really to be in the game because there's a lot of stuff going on around you, but there is a game going on. So stay inside the game and also pay a lot of attention, especially these days more than ever with HDTV coming in right now and the quality, that the technological quality is so good that you have to pay a lot of attention to what's on that screen at all times because if you're looking away, somebody might see something that you didn't see and they'll go, what was that? And you will not have seen it. So I'm probably watching the monitor more than I ever have in my career right now. Well, I, I want one more question. If, if Al Michaels was a product and, and we went into a... Uh, grocery store and it's on the shelf. What, <laughs> what, what guarantee would, would go along with that product? You know, every product has a guarantee about it. What, what would Al Michaels guarantee if I bought that product? I'd like to say it was a money-back guarantee, but as long as it didn't come out of my pocket, it would be. Um, I would hope it would be, uh, you, you'd be satisfied. You'd be, it would be top quality. Uh, it would be made from the best ingredients. Uh, the people that worked on the product uh, took a lot of pride in, in making that product. And, uh, and it wouldn't be necessarily top of the line, but it would be, it would be something that you could buy and, and enjoy. And it wouldn't fall apart. And there wouldn't be any built-in obsolescence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we got everything. That's it. Indeed, Al Michaels, even at age 77, is still version 1.0. No built-in obsolescence for this goat. I want to end on two very disparate stories about Al. The first, look, we all have our idiosyncrasies, right? You may have heard that Al has never eaten a vegetable. Okay. I was there when he inadvertently consumed a vegetable. We were at an event. He had food on his plate. And there was a breaded and fried piece of okra. He put it in his mouth and ate it. When we later told him what it was, the look on his face was as though he was poisoned. 
To this day, he still will not admit to eating that piece of okra, even though I did see it with my own two eyes. The last thing I want to talk about with Al is actually kind of ironic since we are recording this on International Women's Day. What does that have to do with Al Michaels? Well, let me tell you, from my personal experience, I have never come across a man, especially of his generation, who is so supportive of women, in particular, so supportive of me. And where does that come from? His wife of 55 years, Linda, who would put up with nothing less. Linda travels with Al to most games and observing them over the years. You know what, folks? It makes you admire Al Michaels even more. Thank you so much for listening. And next week, we bring you to the Windy City for a 1995 interview with one of the true characters of the game, the punky QB himself, Jim McMahon, as he and Steve talk all things 85 Bears. I hope you'll join us. I'm Andrea Kramer. <laughs>